spend some time in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we call out to you. Oh, Jesus, how much we need your grace. And Father, how much we need your love. And Holy Spirit, how much we need your unifying fellowship. Father, we ask that in this place you would, would help us to be a people who love to exalt and make a big deal about Jesus. And Father, may what I say this morning and what people hear and may our gathering around these tables to enjoy fellowship with Jesus be a part of every person in this room and, and of those gathering online having the opportunity to draw near and fix their eyes on you, Jesus. Father, help me who speaks and those who hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So periodically throughout the year, uh, we set aside our normal series and we do what's called a hot topic. And as we prayed through um, all the questions and all the issues that are facing our world today, we thought about all the questions and then we realized that what every single one of them had in common was not the question but the answer. So we're going to skip the question and go straight to the answer this morning. And you know the answer, of course, right? Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every question that we may face in life. You remember the story of the, of the kid who goes to Sunday school? The teacher asks the kid in Sunday school, Hey, what's the name of the animal that, that's brown and has a fuzzy tail? And the kid said, Well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. Jesus really is the answer. Imagine if you were, were headed offshore in your boat. You, your back was to the coast, and to your front was just the vast Atlantic Ocean. Now, what do you do? How do you fix a point on the horizon when there's nothing on the horizon? And that's what it feels like in our culture today. So much of the time, so many of us are headed at a million miles an hour. We have all our outboards full throttle, and we're headed offshore. And there's nothing in the distance to fix our heart and our lives to. And what I want you to hear this morning is that in Jesus Christ, you have a true, fixed, un changing point of reference and that if you would fix your eyes on Jesus he will direct you home and what I want for all of us is that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and then we would invite others to come and see him too that's our point that's our action step it's one sentence for the whole morning. Fix our eyes on Jesus and invite others to come and see him too.
Does your heart need a true north? Listen, is it easy for you to identify the enemy? Is it easy for you to identify the other? Is it easy for you to see the sin in other people, but harder to see the sin in yourself? Listen, do you find yourself tossed by doubts and insecurities and and fears? Do you wonder sometimes which end is up? Are you confused by all the voices in our culture and all the voices that you hear in your own heart about who you are and why you're here and where we're going? See, we all need to learn to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so I'd invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to walk through these first six verses of 2 Corinthians 11. Now, if we fixed our eyes on Jesus and we invited others to come and see him too, is anyone interested in Jesus? I love this quote um, by Albert Einstein. He's pretty smart, right? I mean, do you think you'll run across anyone in your work or anyone in your school or anyone in your neighborhood who's smarter than Albert Einstein? Listen, don't be intimidated by smart people. Listen to what Albert Einstein said. He said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled By the luminous figure of the Nazarene, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. So listen, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and let's invite others to come and see him too. When we do, people will be attracted, not to you or to me, but to the person of Jesus Christ. Now Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth and he had planted the church at Corinth. He went on a missionary journey all through Macedonia and Asia and he planted multiple churches but he loved Corinth. In fact from 51 to 52 AD he lived in Corinth and part of the time he worked as a tent maker. That was his trade. And then part of the time, he devoted to full-time pastoral ministry in the city of Corinth. And Acts chapter 18 tells us that he was there for a year and a half, for 18 months. It's one of his longest times in one place all throughout his journeys. He loved this church at Corinth. And after he left... After several years, he started to hear that there were troubles in the church. There were problems in the church. And so around 55 AD, Paul writes a series of letters to the church where he begins to address some of the problems that have crept into this church at Corinth. Because he's mad at them? No, because he loves them. And he knows them. And he's in community with them. And so he writes to the church at Corinth and he says this, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. 
Paul says, listen, I'm going to do something very, very foolish. I don't even need to do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to defend my apostleship. I'm going to defend myself, and it's foolish. I don't need to because you know me. You know how much I love you. You know how I lived with you. You know how I served with you. You know how I taught you. He goes on and he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul says, it's foolish for me to defend myself to you because I did not ask you to attach yourself to me. I married you off to someone else. His name is Jesus. I don't know the last wedding you went to. I've gone to hundreds of weddings, and I've officiated hundreds of weddings. And you know what I've learned over the years? Nobody's looking at me. And no one's looking really at the groom, except maybe his mother. But everyone is looking at the bride. It's all about her. And in the church, we are the bride of Christ, but our greatest joy, our greatest delight is in lifting all the attention to Jesus. Paul says, your most primary attachment is not to me, the church planter. It's not to me, the pastor. It's to Jesus. Verse 3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now we're going to come back to this verse and verse 4 in just a minute. But listen, do we need to hear the word of God? Do we need to hear what Paul has to say? Do we need to hear what all the scriptures have to say to us about Jesus? If, if Corinth, a church planted by the apostle Paul, could so quickly fall into so many problems and so many challenges, if they could become distracted... And maybe even more, if Eve, who lived in a far better situation than we live in, in a perfect place with a perfect father who walked in the garden with his people in a place without sin, if Eve could be drawn away, how much more do we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and invite others to come and see him too? For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Paul says, you've gotten off track. You've, 
got your focus off of something other than Jesus. You've brought your focus off of something other than the power of the Holy Spirit. You've brought your focus off of the gospel. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I'm unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Paul isn't afraid to admit his weakness. In fact, those who are accusing Paul and, and trying to draw people away from following Paul, they say, oh, he's, not a, he's not a very good speaker. And he says, you're right. I'm not a very good speaker. But everything I speak is about someone who is amazing. And the beautiful thing about my teaching is not me, but Jesus. Oh, how much we can take comfort in the fact that we have in Jesus. A true north. A place we can look to and if we fix our eyes on Jesus and invite others to come and see him too. He will work in us to draw us into his fellowship with the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to come back and look at verses 3 and 4. And I want us to see in verses 3 and 4 something very important. Verse 3 says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray for the from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now Paul says that what he wants for the church in Corinth and what God says he wants for every single one of his churches, and that includes good news, is that we would cultivate a pure and simple devotion to Jesus. Now, what's the danger? Why do we so easily get off track? And the answer is that, that we have an enemy. And listen, the enemy aren't the people in the culture around us who disagree with us. The enemy isn't our secular professors, or our politicians. The enemy is the enemy. And all those in the culture around us who don't know Jesus are not our enemy. They're the victims of our enemy. They're held captive by our enemy. And the work of the gospel is the work of setting captives free by the proclamation of the good news that there is a Savior who has come to deliver all people from the power of the enemy and the authority of the enemy, the kingdom of the enemy, and bring them into Jesus' kingdom. Now, who is the enemy? The enemy is the devil, and he's called the serpent throughout the scriptures in Genesis 3 and here in 2 Corinthians 11 and then later in the book of Revelation. 
two times, he's called the serpent. You say, well, Dave, you, you don't believe that, that there was really a snake that slithered into the Garden of Eden and spoke. I just know that the Bible is one story. And that from beginning to end, it teaches that there is an enemy who stands against God and against his people. And that that enemy has one characteristic. He's a liar. Everything that he says is a lie. And so we can be prepared to respond to his claims because we just simply know that whatever is opposite to what he says is the truth. Now let's see what he did in Genesis 3. It'll help us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Do you see his first, his first lie? Has God said? Satan's first strategy in his craftiness was to try and question and bring into doubt the woman's dependence upon the word of God. He says, has God said? The woman said to the serpent, from the tree, from the fruit of the tree of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Eve's already done. She doesn't know it yet, but the serpent has already begun to build doubt in her mind, and she's already beginning to add to what God has said. For God said, you shall not eat of it, and Eve says, you shall not eat of it or touch it, or you will die. Well, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So after Satan seeks to tempt Eve by saying to her, God, his word is not true. He now says, God isn't good. God doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. He's trying to trick you. He's saying that you... He's... He's keeping something from you. And how many people believe that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy all out looking for people who are having a good time and running to tell them to stop? And nothing could be further from the truth. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings into the midst of the good world that God had made comes sin rebellion against God his commands, his truth, his character. And when sin comes into the world through Eve and then Adam's disobedience, 
Shame comes into the world and guilt comes into the world and separation from God and from one another and from the good earth that God created comes into the world. And Adam and Eve immediately try in their own strength, in their own power to do something to cover their shame, but it does not work. They cannot save themselves. They need supernatural help. They need God to come and save them. And he does. And you and I live in a world filled with people and it may be true of some of you this morning who are separated from God and separated from one another and separated from the good earth that God has made and you sense that feeling of disconnection that sense of shame of guilt of condemnation and you've tried everything to fill your life up with something that can give you a sense that you matter, that you're secure. And I will tell you that the only thing that can fill you up and to give you a security, that can tell you who you really are and why you're really here and where this world is really going is Jesus. And Paul, in in 2 Corinthians 11, in his rebuke of the church, gives the answer to how we get the truth of God's word and the truth of God's goodness pressed deep into our lives. Because those are the things that Satan attacked in Eve the truth of God's word and the goodness of God. And if we're going to have the truth of Scripture and the goodness of God pressed into the center of our life, then we need to look outside of ourselves. And it's there in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says there's three things that we need. We need Jesus. We need the Spirit. We need the Gospel. He embeds the solution How do we know that God's word is true? How do we know that God is good? Look to Jesus. Look to the Spirit. Look to the gospel. Those are the answers that our minds need, that our hearts need, that our wills need if we're going to be committed to what? The truth of Scripture and the goodness of God. So Jesus... Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's son. He's fully God and he's fully man. And he's come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ, in John 3, verse 16, we read this. For God so loved the world. That he gave an inspired rabbi. No, he gave a son. He gave a son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father gave God the Son to us. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, in our place, fully God and fully man, he lived the life that we should have lived. 
And then he died the death that we deserve to die. And on the cross, he paid the full and awful penalty that our sins deserve. He paid it all. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. What does the scriptures, the scriptures principally teach? Who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Jesus is God the Son, fully God and fully man. Now, how do we get this into our life? How do we get this into us? One of my mentors, Jack Miller, said this. How do we get loose for action? I would take the Gospels and I would soak myself in those Gospels until I'm full of the way Christ thought. As we walk in his steps, we ask Christ to show us his grace to be Christ-like. And we become much more simple. Listen, are, are you a Bible reader? I'm not talking about a religious Bible reader who reads the Bible to check off your checklist and to say to God, God, now bless me because I've read your word. But, but are you a Bible reader the way Jack describes a Bible reader? Someone who comes to God's word to see Jesus in every page. Listen, on your chairs when you came in is a study. And inside that study is an opportunity for you to read along with others through the New Testament. This week, we're going to start tomorrow reading in the book of Philippians. Jump in with us. Start soaking yourself in the scriptures. Pour God's word into you. Become a Bible reader. Not a nerd, not a, not a bookish person, but just someone who wants to soak up who Jesus is on every page of the Bible. God wants our minds engaged with who is Jesus. And how do we get there? We get there by pressing God's word into our heart day after day. Do you have that habit? You can. Grab a study. Jump into the New Testament with us. What about the Spirit? What about the Spirit? Paul says that not only does our mind need to be engaged with Scripture, with the truth of who Jesus is and what He came to do, but we need our hearts to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need our emotions engaged. We need to receive a different Spirit than the one that we naturally have. We need the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, in Francis Schaeffer, in his sermon, The Lord's Work and the Lord's Way, reminds us of this. This is so, so important. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholic Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All those things are real. There are problems in the world. But the biggest problem is this. 
All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Paul says to the church at Corinth, the problem isn't around you. The problem is in you. And the solution is that God has sent his Holy Spirit. God has sent his Son, Jesus. God has sent his Holy Spirit to give you all that you need to do the work of the ministry, to be the church. It's not in our own strength. It's in the strength and power that God provides through the Holy Spirit. Then the third thing, if we're going to believe that God's word is true and if we're going to receive from him all of his goodness, we need Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit. And third, we need the gospel. Now what is the gospel? The gospel is the truth that God saves sinners. American folk religion is the idea that God helps those who help themselves. But the gospel is that none of us, none of us could save themselves. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. But that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The truth of the gospel is the reminder that it's not about you. It's about Jesus and what he's done for us. The gospel is the truth that God has made a way for you and I to be forgiven and declared righteous. And it is the central truth of the message that the church brings to the world. And if the truth, Martin Luther said, of our being justified by Christ alone is lost, then all Christian truths are lost. In other words, if I don't preach the gospel, if you don't know and teach the gospel to one another, then everything else that we do is meaningless. There is no middle ground between received and earned righteousness. It's 100%. If you're depending on what you earn for yourself by your own works in any respect, you're not trusting Christ at all. The person who wanders away from received righteousness has no other choice but to live by earned righteousness if he does not depend on the work of Christ, he must depend on his own work. So we must teach and continually repeat the truth of this received or Christian righteousness so that the Christians continue to hold to it and never confuse it with earned righteousness. On this truth, the church is built and has its being. How do we build our lives on the truth of Scripture? How do we trust in the goodness of God? 
by reminding ourselves again and again of the truth of the gospel that God saves sinners. Listen, when you go to small group this week, remind the people in your small group, God saves sinners. Listen, catch up. Talk about the Ohio State game. Talk about the UCLA game. Talk about the Florida State game. It's okay. Have fun. But don't ever let an opportunity go by when you're speaking to one another to remind each other, God saves sinners. That means you too. Is Jesus your true north? Have you built and fixed yourself upon Jesus? Are you fixing your eyes on him? Oh, dear people, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and invite others to come and see him too. What could happen this week? If everywhere you went, the eyes of your heart were fixed on Jesus. Fully God, fully man, who's come into the world to save sinners. The eyes of your heart were fixed upon Jesus. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, you banked as a follower of Jesus. And you drove as a follower of Jesus. And you shopped as a follower of Jesus. And you went on social media as a follower of Jesus, which probably means you wouldn't do it at all. What if everywhere you went, you were gossiping the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord to the praise and glory of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, how much we need your help. Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? Search every heart here, especially mine, and help us to see whether we're fixing our hope, fixing our life, fixing the eyes of our heart upon Jesus. Or if there's some other thing that has crept in, some other hope, some other security that's crept in. Holy Spirit, search us, O oh God, and know our heart. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any unclean way within us and lead us in the everlasting way. Jesus, as we come to this table, feed us by faith, for I pray in your name.